In this time, let us turn our hearts to the Lord as we receive our Old Testament lesson from the prophet Micah, chapter 5, verses 2 through 5a. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has brought forth. Then the rest of his kindred shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall live secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be the one of peace. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. As we hear our New Testament lesson from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him for, from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. According to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, as we've been continuing through this season of Advent, we've been unpacking the four different themes that we liturgically associate with Advent. So as you know, we light one of four candles uh, every Sunday of Advent. Uh, we start with a candle representing hope. And we recognize that this is a time of anticipation. Then we t turn and light the candle of peace. And we recognize that this is a time of preparation. Last week, we lit the candle of joy. And we acknowledged how this is a time for sharing joy and acknowledging what God has done for us. And this week, we light the final candle of love. And I think it's so appropriate that the final candle is love because this is a time in which we turn our attention to what Christmas is all about. And Advent, as a season of preparation for Christmas, is all about. Advent and Christmas, they're about love incarnate. And there are two words there that I want us to unpack a little bit. The first word is incarnate, uh, which comes from the word carnal, in carnal, uh, to be made flesh. In other words, something that takes on human form. So when we're talking about love incarnate, we're talking about love being made human, right? And this is what this is how the gospel starts out. And love and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, right? That's uh, John chapter 1. And the second word to unpack in that expression is love. And when we're talking about this kind of love, we're not talking about the same kind of love that I have for Taco Bell. Although it's probably pretty comparable. I do love Taco Bell a lot. I love my wife a little bit more. 
But this kind of love that we're talking about, this is in the Greek agape, which is unconditional, self-sacrificial love. This is not the kind of love that we typically hear from rulers, but this is the kind of love that is associated with the ruler, the king of Israel, Jesus. This is not the kind of love that you would expect to hear King George III sing about in Hamilton as he sings the song, You'll be back, this I'm sure, I'll fight the fight and win the war, for your love, for your praise, and I'll love you till my dying days. And when push comes to shove, I will kill your friends and family to remind you of my love. I had to sing it. <laughs> no, it's not that kind of love because that's really horrible and, and well, bloody love. No, it's not that kind of love at all. This kind of love is humble. This kind of love is servant love. Our uh, Old Testament lesson from Micah is uh, you know, appropriate. I'm very proud of this book myself. Uh, from, from Micah is, is a very unusual passage at first glance to be talking about love. And if you were in Sunday school this morning, you heard me talk way too much about this because the, this passage in Micah doesn't reference love at all. Not one bit. But it is what we call a messianic prophecy. It's a prophecy referring to the coming Messiah. A Messiah who will be born in Bethlehem. A Messiah who will come and bring peace. A Messiah who will feed the Lord's flock in the strength of the Lord. A Messiah who will give them rest and peace that they might live secure. Right? And, and this passage here, it, like I said, doesn't reference love directly. But we get the benefit of hindsight because we know that Micah is talking about Jesus. And we know that Jesus came with love, not as some military Messiah that's coming to conquer all, but rather as a humble Messiah, born in Bethlehem of all places. This is a nobody's place. I mean, the, I, not, not to offend anybody, but this is like somebody who comes from burnt corn, Alabama. This is a, it's, a, it's a place you wouldn't expect a Messiah to come from, right? This is, it's not a big city like Bethlehem is nowhere. Humble. This is the kind of Messiah who comes with servant love. The kind, as Micah says, will stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord. Feed his flock. That is a servant action that takes compassion. And not only that, this is the kind of love that is between a mother and child. And this can be a little bit difficult of a topic to talk about because I recognize not everybody has experienced this kind of feeling that's, talking, that's being talked about here. But in Scripture, the love between a mother and child is a common metaphor to describe the kind of self-sacrificial love with which the Messiah comes. Because a mother is one who gives generously, who takes of her time, who goes through the pain of the process and is there for her child. This is that where Micah references, until that time when she who is in labor has brought forth. Right? This is that kind of love that we are talking about being incarnate. That's as cliche as it might sound what Christmas is all about. Love incarnate. But we do have to acknowledge what ends up happening when love is not the focus of Christmas. And so for this, I turn once more to that holy movie, 
How the Grinch Stole Christmas. The Jim Carrey version, of course. It's just brilliant. I mean, if you haven't watched that this season, go back and watch it three or four times. It's so worth it. In this movie, I saw a, a meme on Facebook recently about this movie, and it was saying, the Grinch didn't hate Christmas. He hated people, which is fair. And I thought that was interesting, but it's also not quite true itself. The movie isn't about how the Grinch hated Christmas. The movie isn't even about how the Grinch hated people. Rather, the movie itself is a reflection on what happens when a person, or a who, is not allowed to feel love in their community. And so, we look at, uh, through, through this movie, we get the, this perspective of what happened in the Grinch's past to make him the way that he is, and the whole heart being two sizes too small thing. Well, we, we start off, right off the bat. He does not look like all the other Who's, right? He's green. That's kind of a you know, pretty shocking thing. Green and like really fuzzy and all this stuff. Yeah, it's, it's different. So already in his community, he's had a mark placed against him. Already considered an outcast. He ends up getting rejected by his peers over and over again, particularly around Christmas time, and rejected by the girl he likes uh, because of his weird Christmas present that was very sweet of him to make and everything. He ends up becoming a laughingstock in the community, and his name, his very name, ends up becoming a cultural shorthand for someone who does not have much Christmas spirit. They pull out the book of Who, which says, The term Grinchy shall apply when Christmas spirit is in short supply. They use his name as a shorthand. Like, it doesn't get much brutal than that in your own culture. Like, they were really terrible to him. He becomes this myth of a horrendous creature that lives atop Mount Crumpet that nobody should dare get anywhere close to, except for some silly teenagers because, well, that's what they do. And all of this ends up compounding to create this really grumpy spirit within the Grinch. And he ends up being seen as this person who hates Christmas because it was at Christmas time that he didn't experience the love from his community. Now, Whoville is described as a community that is, well, frankly obsessed with Christmas, right? But they don't get it. Their Christmas looks a little bit different than what Christmas is supposed to look like. And it's, for the Grinch, a problem, a bit of a sticking point. And he ends up seeing this better than anybody else. And it's not until a little girl's relentless search for the meaning of Christmas leads her to show the Grinch kindness and compassion, joy, invitation, that the Grinch undergoes a transformation, right? His heart ends up growing three sizes. And this little girl, Cindy Lou Who, she doesn't get it either. The fact that the whole community is so obsessed with Christmas, there's this one deleted scene in the original movie, but if you go and watch it on a streaming service, they include it in there, where uh, Cindy Lou Who's uh, dad ends up maxing out another credit card, and everybody throws a celebration. I'm like, 
don't know that you understand the implications of what you've just done, my friend. <laughs> it's going to be very difficult. And Cindy Lou Who, she, she doesn't get it either. She's like, is this really what Christmas is all about? The presents, the gift giving, all of this madness? And so she goes on this hunt for the meaning of Christmas. And along the way, she ends up realizing that Christmas really burned the Grinch. Really, the people at Christmas time burned the Grinch. And so as she starts to engage with the Grinch, they start to form this bond, and it ends up being the transformative force only after the Grinch, of course, has stolen Christmas. But it's after the Grinch has stolen Christmas, and after Cindy Lou Who's uh, endeavor to figure out the meaning of Christmas, that the people in Whoville, who are obsessed with Christmas, end up recognizing that maybe they had it wrong all along. Because you see, it's not just the Grinch who needed a change of heart. It was the entire community. Everybody needed a change of heart about Christmas and what it was all about. And so the two of them end up being a symbol for the community of what Christmas is supposed to be all about. Love, not the gifts, which the gifts were a big part of it. And giving gifts started out as a symbolic gesture of love, but in Whoville they definitely got carried away with that. It's not about the gifts. It's not about the parties and the celebration. It's what happens between the Grinch and Cindy Lou Who. Love. And once again, it's a very specific kind of love. Not the like, I'm falling in love with you kind of sweet puppy love kind of thing. Not the kind of love between me and Taco Bell, but the kind of love that exists in action. The kind of love that has signs that can be shown, the kind of love that takes action. And so we see through this movie, and it's one of the reasons why I love this movie so much, that Christmas and Advent, as we're still in the season of uh, preparation for Christmas, is about love. And more specifically, love incarnate. And that amount of love should, I say should, and that's never a great word to use, but it should elicit some kind of loving response. So, we turn now to our gospel lesson, which I think uh, it, it might be one of my favorite passages uh, of, of Scripture, particularly around this time. This is what's known as the Magnificat, Mary's song. This moment in which Mary has just received news that she is going to be what's called in Greek Theodokos, the mother of God the mother who bears God, okay? And this might sound like a weird thing, but recall that Jesus is God incarnate, love incarnate. Uh, and, and Mary just receives this information that she's about to bear a child. And this child is going to be called Emmanuel, God with us, or Jesus, Yeshua, God saves, right? And, and upon hearing this news, her reaction is, my soul magnifies the Lord. This is not the appropriate response, Mary. Think about the situation that she is in culturally. Now, our culture is a little bit different from theirs, so I'm going to give a little bit of context to this. She is a teenage lady, okay? Estimated probably around the age of 14, 15-ish. Could be younger, could be older. 
She's in her teens. She's engaged to be married to this man, which is normal, very sweet, very happy days for Joseph and Mary. And she finds out she's pregnant. Uh-oh. Because it wasn't Joseph. So she's been out and about. And this is going to be a, a little suspect for the community. Because, well, when somebody's pregnant, particularly a small teenage lady, it's probably going to show, right? Yeah. Uh, and so the community's going to find out sooner or later. And so this isn't a good situation that she's in because a woman's value, and this is not something that we should be proud of in our history of humanity, but at this day and age, a woman's value was entirely tied to the man that she was married to. And that value was only really worthwhile if she could bear that man children. Right? This is not something we should be proud of, in, but that's part of the culture that's going on here. And so already her value has been, in the eyes of the culture, of the society, completely diminished, even eradicated. Her life is in danger, and she's at risk of being uh, a social outcast for the rest of her days because no man's going to want to marry her after she's had an illegitimate child. That's the culture of the day. And instead of fearing for her life, Instead of recognizing all of the implications that are about to hit her, her response is, my soul magnifies the Lord. That's how she chooses to approach her situation. And it's important to recognize this because it's not something that I feel like I would be strong enough to do in such a situation a situation in which I'm about to become a social outcast, in which I'm about to be the bane of society. But she turns and lifts her voice to God, recognizing the goodness of God. And her response recognizes that she is going to bear love incarnate. Her song says, His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Mercy. He has shown strength with his arm. Strength. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. Humility. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones. Subversivity. Is that a word? Subversivity? That sounds like a word. Yikes. And lifted up the lowly. Empowerment. He has filled the hungry with good things, compassion, and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, servitude. In other words, Mary's song recognizes that what's about to happen isn't about her. Yes, she's at risk from all kinds of crazy societal implications. Fortunately, Joseph is able to handle this a little bit more eloquently after his own visitation from an angel, uh, and they work things out and smooth things over. But even still, Mary recognizes that this is about the world. This is about everybody. This is God who's coming to make a difference, an impact in the world through love incarnate. And she recognizes that love incarnate is world-changing. 
How else should we respond when we find out that love incarnate has come for us? Other than my soul magnifies the Lord. And so we consider this as Mary's response, and we wonder what should our response be to this love? I think that the only appropriate response to love is love. Right? I mean, that's what we do. We return love with love. But I, I need to point out that this kind of love is not something that we give or something that we receive. It's not that kind of present, the kind that the people in Whoville were obsessed with. No, no, no. This love is something that you do that changes someone's life, like what Cindy Lou Who did for the Grinch and the whole community. It's that kind of love that we're talking about. That is to be our response. It's love that shows mercy, love that is humble, love that lifts up the lowly, love that fills the hungry, love that serves others, love that transforms. And so I want to ask you a question that might be too obvious. Maybe it's not, but I want to ask it anyway. How might you be able to make this season, Advent into Christmas and then the 12 days after Christmas and really beyond, a time more about love than about the presents or the parties, the meals, the chaos, the traveling, the anxiety, the family feuds, to make this a season of love. We see signs during this time of year that pop up everywhere. I pass by one every single day that says, keep Christ in Christmas. It's a sweet sentiment, but I don't like these signs, and I'll tell you why. I, I think these signs are, are a little bit strange. Uh, I, I don't like these signs very much because Christ is already and has always been and always will be in and through and above and beyond Christmas. Uh, I mean, we, you, nobody takes Christ out of Christmas. It, it is Christ's time, right? Christ has always been in Christmas. And yet, we still end up making it about ourselves one way or another. And so, I think rather a better sign that we would see rather than keep Christ in Christmas would be keep love in Christmas, and through this, to magnify the Lord. Consider what that expression means, to magnify the Lord. That's taking, I mean, like a magnifying glass and seeing something that's always been there, but we just didn't acknowledge was there before until we had that proper lens to look through, right? Christ has always been in Christmas. It's not about keeping Christ in Christmas. Rather, it's about keeping love in Christmas and through this magnifying the Lord, actually using our lives as a lens to show the world that Christ has always been in Christmas and that the love of Christ is what this is all about. And so my challenge for us this week is simply that, to magnify the Lord with love. Let your lives be the lens through which other people see that Christ is here with love, to show kindness, compassion, mercy, justice, joy, peace, hope, love. Advent is a time about love incarnate and should elicit that very same loving response from us. Love that is life-changing. Love that is world 
changing. Because a society without much love produces people like the Grinch. Or like the mayor in that movie. He was really the villain in all of it. A society without much love produces people like them. People who are broken. People who are hurt. People who end up lashing out out of their brokenness and hurt. The Grinch steals Christmas just because he needed to be loved. Not because he hated Christmas, but because he wasn't loved. We see the products of a society without love today and much of the heartbreaking news that goes on in our world. I don't want to get into that because that's not what this is about. But we recognize that a society without love is a society that is broken. And we recognize that what really magnifies the Lord, what really puts the spotlight on God, ascends God far above ourselves, is love. So let us go and do likewise. And let us pray.